Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, November 22nd, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's headlines. The U.S. and the Philippines launch joint military patrols. China reaffirms its support to expand BRICS. The U.S. House gears up to impeach Biden by January. Israel makes moves to approve a hostage release deal with Hamas. Ukraine sacks two cyber defense officials. Musk sues Media Matters over its claims that X promotes ads beside hateful content. The U.S. Senate subpoenaed the CEOs of X, Snap, and Discord to testify on child safety. The U.K.'s SUNAC announces an initiative to produce climate-resilient crops. Papua New Guinea's tallest volcano erupts. And over 200 are convicted in Italy's biggest organized crime trial in decades. The Philippines and the U.S. launch joint patrols. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CNA, The Defense Post, SWI, and The Times of India. The Philippines and the U.S. launched joint military patrols near Taiwan on Tuesday as part of a three-day exercise that analysts say is likely to increase tensions with China. Describing the maritime and air patrols as a significant initiative, Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. stated the exercise would bolster the interoperability of our military forces. Marcos had described relations with Beijing in the South China Sea as more dire than it was before a day prior. The maritime cooperative activity will begin near the province of Batanes and finish in the West Philippine Sea. Manila has alleged that Beijing has started to show interest in building military bases on reefs near the Philippines. China claims sovereignty over a portion of the South China Sea that reaches approximately 900 miles south of its mainland territory. China's nine-dash line includes areas within the Exclusive Economic Zones, or EEZ, of the Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Brunei. The drills will see the Philippines deploy three Navy vessels, with the U.S. providing a littoral combat ship. The U.S. will also send one P-8A plane to accompany Manila's two F-A-50 fighter jets and one A-29B Super Tucano. This comes as Marcos and Chinese President Xi Jinping met earlier this month in an effort to lessen tensions. China's Manila embassy hasn't immediately responded to requests for comment on the matter. All right, Melissa's laid out the facts for us, and on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Let's start with the anti-China narrative spin from the statesman. As China continues its aggressive claims upon territories ruled by international law to not reside within their sovereign rights, the U.S. has continued to take responsibility for securing peace in the region while standing by its ally as agreed upon in the 1951 U.S.-Philippines Defense Treaty. The more China pushes, the more likely there are to be dangerous consequences. Here's a pro-China narrative from China Daily. The Philippines and the U.S. continue to collude as Manila continues to serve as Washington's proxy in its efforts against China. The Philippines has seemingly made a bet against Beijing, thinking it has a strategic advantage, but that decision will prove to be unwise, as Manila shows it cannot be trusted by its East Asian neighbors. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narrative predictions from the Metaculous Prediction community. This time, they say there's a 17% chance of a U.S.-China war before the year 2035. 
The PRC supports BRICS expansion, and Argentina is likely to withdraw its application. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Economist, Newsweek, Al Jazeera, The New York Times, Reuters, and The South China Morning Post. A spokesperson for the Chinese Foreign Ministry reiterated Beijing's support for the expansion of the BRICS. Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa grouping of developing nations on Monday, stating a news briefing that any country interested in becoming a member will be welcomed. This comes as Argentina's proposed foreign minister under President-elect Javier Millet, Diana Mondino, told at the victory rally on Sunday that the country would likely decline membership on claims there is no clear benefit for Argentina to enter the BRICS. Argentina was the only one in the Americas to be invited to join the association's founding members during its last summit in August. However, Millet vowed during his campaign to decline the invitation, which would come into force in January 2024. Next year, five other countries, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates, will enter the diverse bloc that accounts for nearly half the world's population and more than a quarter of GDP. More than a dozen candidates are believed to have applied to join BRICS, reportedly including Algeria, Bahrain, Bangladesh, Belarus, Bolivia, Cuba, Honduras, Indonesia, Kazakhstan, Kuwait, Morocco, Nigeria, the Palestinian National Authority, Senegal, Thailand, Venezuela, and Vietnam. The major emerging economies comprising the bloc have sought to represent the global south on the world stage, often countering the U.S. and its Western allies. On Tuesday, the BRICS and its future members, including Argentina, called for an end to the war in Gaza in a virtual summit. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. And we'll start this round of spins with an anti-China narrative from The Diplomat. BRICS is merely a notoriety-seeking PRC-dominated group that comprises countries that have nothing in common except the ambition to attain relevance in geopolitical affairs. Each nation certainly has its own reasons for applying to the joint group, But ultimately, doing so can only deepen its dependence on China. And China Focus brings us the pro-China narrative. The more that BRICS expands, the closer the world will be to a new multipolar international order, with a robust peace-building China based on a win-win cooperation and mutual respect that will replace the centuries-old exploitative Western dominant system. It's outrageous that the U.S. and its allies keep judging the bloc and its members by their own standards. And here's another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 70% chance that China will operate at least one military base in a BRICS country before 2026. Do you think the real argument was just like, we already have one vowel, we don't need another, we're not sure where we'd put you? The fact that they skipped the first meeting, you know, that's dire consequences. They didn't know they were going to be choosing a name that time, I don't think. I would have... that yeah. was a big miss. Yeah, because it could yeah. be. I, I, it reminds me of when I, uh, the, the first, you know, the show Big Brother, the, uh, the, the, TV, oh, yeah, the like reality, reality show. show Big Brother, long running show. It's been on for like 25 years or something. Is this still the, going? Yeah. Oh, the wow. first episode ever was, I can tell you, it was on in the summer of the year 2000 because I remember I had to work on, I always worked on Wednesdays at the drugstore and and I missed the first episode. So then I was like, nah, I missed the first episode. I'm just never going to watch it. And to this day I haven't, I feel like I missed, (laughs) (laughs) I missed the first one and you know, 50 seasons in, I, I feel like, you know, so, so they, you know what, Scott, I, 
I think that you made the right choice, I, whether it was an accident or not. Now, I don't know where Argentina falls and all that, but I think you you not having to commit to 25 years of watching every Wednesday night Big Brothers is probably it's probably why you're a successful human being. That's true. You think of all the hours I've gotten back. Plus, I mean, I worked that Wednesday, so that was was I was making five sixty five an hour, and I probably worked <laughs> for four hours. So. You know, it worked out, you know, what well. What were you, seven years old? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, minimum wage. I think minimum yep. wage was 515. And then That's I right. had, because I was a photo lab technician, I had a little bit of a bump. Thank you very much. Nice. And nice. Uh, I wasn't just a regular worker at the at the CVS. So uh, I think I think it was 565. Um, wow. So, Cha-ching. yeah. I, I know. Jeez. My goodness gracious. But I got all the other hours back, too. And it was in the long run, it was worth it. Yeah. A report says the U.S. House could vote on a Biden impeachment inquiry by January. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes and Politico. Politico reported Tuesday that U.S. House Republicans could vote on whether to impeach President Joe Biden as early as January. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan, Republican of Ohio, told the outlet that his party could finish interviewing at least 15 witnesses, including Biden's son, Hunter, by the end of the year. The House GOP faces multiple obstacles, however, including their thin majority in the lower chamber and many in their party still hesitant over whether they've obtained enough impeachment evidence. If it did go through, they would likely accuse Biden of improperly using his political office to further his family's business dealings. Since former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, announced the inquiry led by the Judiciary Oversight and Ways and Means Committee in September, his colleagues have gathered a wealth of bank records and interviewed several Biden family associates. Recently elected Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican of Louisiana, however, has been skeptical of the merits of the investigation. Jordan estimated that they still have 12 to 15 interviews left to conduct, including Hunter Biden and Elizabeth Hirsch-Naftali, who purchased Hunter's artwork. Jordan, Oversight Chairman James Comer, and Ways and Means Chairman Jason Smith also briefed Speaker Johnson last week on the status of the investigation, which Jordan has said could spill over into January. The impeachment, which will likely be rejected by the Democrat-majority Senate if passed by the House, could also include the charge that Biden obstructed the GOP's probe by not cooperating. The White House, however, would likely point to a Department of Justice opinion stating that articles of impeachment cannot be filed without a formal vote on an inquiry. Some Republicans are also worried about the negative effects an impeachment could have on their party's chances in the 2024 election. Representative Ben Klein, Republican of Virginia, of the Judiciary Committee, said that the further you go toward an election, the more politicized these conversations become, which is why it's all the more important for us to begin to take action sooner rather than later. Thanks, Melissa. The Intelligencer brings us the Democratic narrative. There are many reasons why this inquiry won't work, the least of which is the lack of any evidence to support these corruption accusations. First of all, only the extreme MAGA Republicans are enthusiastic about this impeachment, with the rest quietly hoping for it to die on the floor or be dropped entirely, especially the 18 GOP reps from states Biden won in 2020. And finally, if this sham inquiry eventually passes the House, it will be dead on arrival in the Democrat-led Senate. Here's the Republican narrative from The Federalist. 
While government representatives in Biden's party may not allow impeachment to succeed in the end, that doesn't mean the president is innocent or free from independent investigations into his nefarious dealings. As more and more burner email accounts emerge exposing how he used private servers to conduct White House business, for example, those interested in the truth will hopefully find more incriminating evidence of Biden using his office to reap financial rewards for himself and his family. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 25% chance that Joe Biden will be impeached by the House of Representatives. Melissa, how are we to judge the quality of these paintings and artworks that are made by people that are notable for things other than being artists? Hunter Biden uh, has these pictures. Are they good? Are they not? How good would they have to be for us to say they were good? How bad would they be for us to say they were bad? How do we judge it when the person's already famous? I think you got to cover up his name and too- uh, put it out, put it out there. But yeah, it's too late for that. What if he is a sublime, sublime artist, but we just can't tell because they were clouded by the, the thing like and this isn't just Hunter Biden, you know, oh, uh. You know, Russell Crowe has a band. Is that band any good? I don't know. But like, it'd be hard to judge it on its own merits. Yeah. Um, I can only imagine that it's not good, but, but it could be good. You know, like that's, that's, uh, what do the, what does the art world say? I haven't heard him say much. I can tell you that, but I can also tell you that it, it would have to be pretty darn good for someone to say that it was good on its own merits. Art is so subjective. Like, I'm not sure yeah. if there's any quality. Like, oh, great. Andy Warhol painted a soup can. Who cares? But that's art just because it's the thing at the right time. It catches the zeitgeist. It is what it is. And it, and yeah. it, and it is. Uh, but what would Hunter Biden have to do for everyone to say, dang, I don't. I either I like the guy or I don't like the guy, but irrespective of that, man, he that brother can paint, man. That is that is a painter. Israel is set to approve a hostage release deal with Hamas. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Haaretz, The Hill, CBS, The Guardian, and The Times of Israel. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's 38-minister cabinet gathered on Tuesday for a detailed debate and vote on a deal that would see the release of around 50 hostages held by Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Despite opposition from the religious Zionism and Atama Uday parties, the government has a majority to approve the deal. According to CBS News, the agreement brokered by the U.S. and Qatar would include a limited six-hour ceasefire for four days as well as the release of three Palestinian prisoners, women and children, held in Israeli detention centers for each hostage freed. Early on Tuesday, Hamas's political leader abroad, Ishmael Haniyeh, said that Hamas was close to reaching a truce agreement with Israel in Qatari-mediated negotiations. Netanyahu said progress was being made, and that I don't think it's worth saying too much, not even at this moment, but I hope there will be good news soon. U.S. President Joe Biden said that things are looking good at the moment and that a deal is very close. Around 240 people were taken hostage by Gaza militants during Hamas's October 7th surprise attack against Israel. The deal would also likely see a temporary increase of humanitarian aid into the besieged strip. In Gaza City, Israeli forces have encircled the Indonesian hospital, with Gaza's health ministry spokesperson saying that Israel was laying siege to the hospital. Israel claimed that militants were operating within the compound. 
Around 2,000 people are reportedly sheltering at the hospital, as well as around 400 patients. In South Lebanon, where hostilities between Israel and Hezbollah, a powerful Iranian-backed political party and armed group, have gradually escalated, four people, including two journalists, were killed in Israeli strikes near the border. More than 50 journalists have reportedly been killed since the war began on October 7th. On Monday, Gaza's Hamas-controlled health ministry said that over 14,000 people in the Gaza Strip have reportedly been killed, over two-thirds of which were women and children. The ministry also reported 33,000 wounded. The official Israeli death toll, meanwhile, stands at 1,200 people. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. We'll start this round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative from the Times of Israel. While freeing hostages is of the utmost importance, Israel must not succumb to international pressure. Hamas has a history of forcing unfair deals, and if entered into carelessly, it could use the ceasefire to regroup and rearm itself and perpetuate its dominance in Gaza. Any negotiation with the terrorists could be destructive to Israel's future, which is why it must proceed cautiously. And the establishment critical narrative comes from Al Jazeera. Though the Israeli defense forces are getting closer to the hostages, a tactical assault on Hamas to free the captives could lead to the deaths of many more. Israel must do whatever it takes to bring its citizens home immediately, including a prisoner exchange or a temporary ceasefire, which will also see much-needed aid reach Gaza, where a humanitarian cataclysm is currently unfolding. Here's the nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 40% chance that Hamas will lose control of Gaza before 2024. Ukraine sacks two cyber defense officials in a corruption probe. Here are the facts as agreed upon by U.S. News and World Report, the Associated Press, and CyberScoop. Amid a probe into corruption and embezzlement, two senior cyber defense officials were sacked from their posts, a Ukrainian government official confirmed on Monday. Yuri Shahol, head of the State Service of Special Communications and Information Protection, and his deputy, Viktor Shora, were both fired. Taras Melanchuk, a senior cabinet official, said on Telegram. The pair were not named in the statement by Ukraine's National Anti-Corruption Bureau. However, the agency said that the general director and employee of a state-owned enterprise were among those believed to be involved. It further said that a total of six people were being investigated for their alleged roles in the plot to embezzle 62 million Ukrainian hryvnia, or $1.72 million, between 2020 and 2022. They are suspected of purchasing software at inflated prices before pocketing the difference. However, in a statement on behalf of Shahol, a spokesperson disputed that the two men were fired and said that they had resigned in order to let the investigation proceed. Shora did not respond to requests for comment. Meanwhile, a spokesperson for state service said that the agency has provided law enforcement with all the necessary information and that the agency's work is based on the principles of openness and zero tolerance of corruption. It urged the public not to reach any conclusions of guilt until the investigation has been completed. Thanks, Melissa. We've got a pro-establishment narrative on this story from Ukranska Pravda. All purchases made by the State Service of Special Communications and Information Protection were carried out in full compliance with the law. This is merely an investigation at this stage, and conclusions should not be reached until the probe has been completed. Here's the establishment critical narrative from U.S. News & World Report. This is yet another worrying example of corruption allegations in Ukraine. 
Kiev will have to do a better job of cleaning up these kinds of acts if it wants to eventually be granted entry to the EU. And Metaculus brings us another nerd narrative prediction saying there's a 30% chance that Ukraine will join the EU before the year 2030. Musk sues Media Matters over hate-adjacent ads on X. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by CBS News, Media Matters for America, TechCrunch, The Guardian, Courthouse News Service, and Fox News. Elon Musk's ex, formerly Twitter, sued Media Matters for America on Monday after the liberal advocacy group claimed that X had displayed ads for major corporations next to neo-Nazi and white nationalist content. Media Matters report published last Friday alleged that companies including Apple, Amazon, IBM, and Oracle had their adverts displayed next to hashtags and search results that promoted far-right ideologies. The report included, Musk has opened the floodgates to hateful content by reversing bans on anti-Muslim bigots, white nationalists, and anti-Semites. The report allegedly prompted an exodus of advertisers from X. According to the company's lawsuit, firms not mentioned in the article also pulled their ads, including Lionsgate, Warner Brothers Discovery, Paramount, and Sony. Furthermore, X claims that Media Matters manipulated the social media platform by using an account that exclusively followed major brands and users to produce fringe content endlessly, refreshing the feed until ads were displayed next to extremist posts. In response, Angelo Caruso, Media Matters president and CEO, said, This is a frivolous lawsuit meant to bully X's critics into silence. Media Matters stands behind its reporting and looks forward to winning in court. Meanwhile, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton said his office was opening a probe into Media Matters over potential fraudulent activity, adding the issue will be closely examined to ensure that the public has not been deceived by the schemes of radical left-wing organizations. Those were the facts. Here's the narrative spin with Narrative A from Media Matters for America. Not only has Elon Musk himself promoted anti-Semitic conspiracy theories in recent days, but it's unquestionable that the number of hateful posts has risen on X, particularly as Musk reversed numerous bans on firms and users that typically produce provocative content. Advertisers are within their rights to pull their money from X. And Narrative B comes from the New York Post. This report was produced by manipulating the typical experience of users on X, creating a false impression that adverts are routinely placed next to hateful content. The platform has been working extremely hard in its content moderation policies, and the data that X will provide at the lawsuit will prove Media Matters claims wrong. Here's another nerd narrative saying there's a 99% chance that Elon Musk will remain the owner of X on January 1st, 2024. The U.S. Senate subpoenas X, Snap, and Discord CEOs to testify on child safety. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, the Associated Press, CNBC, and Politico. The U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee issued subpoenas on Monday to the CEOs of Discord, Snap, and X, requiring them to testify at a December 6 hearing on online child sexual exploitation. The subpoenas issued to Discord CEO Jason Citron, Snap CEO Evan Spiegel, and ex-CEO Linda Yaccarino accused the three companies of repeated refusals to appear during negotiations with Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg and TikTok CEO Shozi Chu, expected to testify at the hearing voluntarily. 
According to the committee, it had to enlist the U.S. Marshals Service to deliver the subpoenas to Discord and X, calling it a remarkable departure from typical practice. According to company statements, Spiegel and Yaccarino have agreed to testify, though the CEOs have yet to agree to the December 6th date, while Discord has expressed its commitment to working with the committee. Social media sites like Discord, Meta, Snap, TikTok, and X have all faced criticism over their child safety practices, with Meta currently facing a joint lawsuit from 41 states and Washington, D.C., over accusations that it has negatively impacted minors' mental health. Congress is facing pressure to pass bills requiring online platforms to increase online protections for children, with at least five states having passed their own similar laws. Thanks, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative from The Hill. Big tech has failed to keep children safe online, and these companies' silence on the issue can no longer continue. It's high time these companies testified and informed Congress on how they will protect children from sexual exploitation on their platforms. The digital world needs the same kind of protection for children as already exists in the offline world. Here's an establishment critical narrative from the London School of Economics. While the committee's concerns are legitimate, it's using big tech as a scapegoat. Social media safety measures are undoubtedly one part of the equation, but they're not enough on their own to ensure children's safety in this increasingly digital era. Other efforts, such as education on the dangers of social media, and other stakeholders must work in tandem with big tech. The UK to invest in climate-resilient crops. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Independent, Business Post, The Grocer, Reuters, ABC News, and the Associated Press. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, speaking at the Global Food Security Summit in London on Monday, announced that the UK will set up a new science initiative to produce climate-resistant crops. Insisting that action must be taken to address the underlying and often unseen causes of global food insecurity, Sunak said that CGIAR, a global research partnership, will lead the new virtual science hub. Under its initiative, British scientists will research the potential of flood-tolerant rice as well as disease-resistant wheat alongside other climate-resistant food sources. As the government changes its approach to deliver in a changing world, the UK will also release 100 million pounds, or 125 million U.S. dollars, in humanitarian funds to states affected by food insecurity and climate change, including Afghanistan and Malawi. Furthermore, Sunak launched a white paper outlining the UK's long-term agenda to fast-track progress on eradicating extreme poverty, mitigating the effects of climate change, and achieving sustainable development goals by 2030. The document said while overseas aid will remain at 0.5% of gross national income after being reduced from 0.7% during COVID, until the fiscal situation allows, the UK government is expected to allocate funds to help countries strengthen their defenses against natural disasters. Thank you, Scott, for laying down the facts. And here's a narrative A from The Telegraph. The UK has consistently shown itself as a leading advocate for resolving global food insecurity and is attempting again to rally the international community through London's summit. While current affairs are swamped with controversy and division of opinion, we must continue to come together in the face of global hunger, uncontrolled migration, war, and climate change to drive international development. And Narrative B comes from The Guardian. 2023 is the fourth straight year of reduced UK development aid spearheaded by Sunak's decision as Chancellor 
to reduce the government's key 0.7% national income budget. Sunak and the conservatives continue to move funds previously intended for international aid toward unethical domestic immigration policies, using empty promises and rhetoric. The UK continues to take a step back from its humanitarian duties across the world. And there's another nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 50% chance that at least 1.3% of people will be concerned about climate change in 2025. Papua New Guinea orders evacuations after a volcanic eruption. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, Associated Press, ABC News, and DW. On Monday, Papua New Guinea's Mount Ulawun volcano began spewing smoke and debris into the air, prompting residential evacuations and the cancellation of air travel. New Britain Island, where Mount Ulawun is located, is a part of the Pacific Ring of Fire, a region of heavy volcanic and tectonic activity that lines the rim of the Pacific Ocean. Mount Ulawun is the tallest and most active volcano in Papua New Guinea. On Tuesday, the eruption declined in activity. However, on Monday, ash was ejected as high as 15 kilometers or 50,000 feet into the air. The Papua New Guinea's Geohazards Management Division downgraded the eruption from its highest warning level but cannot pinpoint when it will subside. At the onset of the eruption, Japan's meteorological agency conducted a risk assessment to determine if the risk of a tsunami reaching Izu and Ogasawara Island was a possibility on Monday afternoon. There was no indication of a sea level rise, therefore no advisories or warnings were issued. After downgrading the eruption from Stage 4 to Stage 3, FlightAware reported that air travel has resumed normal activity at the airports in the capital city of Port Moresby and the capital city of Solomon Islands, Honiara. Thanks, Melissa. Community safety brings us Narrative A. Papua New Guinea is one of the most disaster-prone and vulnerable countries in the world. Residents live under the constant threat of geologic and meteorological hazards. Even with the long-standing risks, the structures and infrastructure throughout PNG are inadequate and at risk. A burgeoning bilateral partnership between Australia and Papua New Guinea's governments focusing on disaster risk reduction could help greatly, but the threat remains. Here's Narrative B from Mashable. The news cycle and social media are lighting up about the many volcanic eruptions that are imminent or already occurring. Yet the truth is that we live on a very active geologic planet, with somewhere between 40 to 50 eruptions occurring every day. Much to the chagrin of doomsayers, there's nothing abnormal going on here. Papua New Guinea has faced and adopted to the threat of volcanoes throughout the tapestry of its history. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 90% chance that the human condition will change fundamentally before the year 2100. Our final story, over 200 are sentenced for mafia ties in Italy. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Wall Street Journal, CNN, Reuters, New York Times, and The Telegraph. An Italian court on Monday convicted more than 200 people, including a former lawmaker and a senior police commander, to a total of 2,200 years in prison at the end of the country's biggest organized crime trial in decades. A panel of three judges took an hour and 40 minutes to read out the sentences against over 330 defendants accused of murder, arms trafficking, extortion, loan sharking, drug trafficking, and money laundering. 
among other crimes. Around 130 defendants were acquitted. The trial began in January 2021 and took place in a purpose-built bunker with some 900 witnesses testifying and over 400 lawyers representing the defendants. Among those tried were 42 women, unprecedented for a mafia trial. Those convicted are part of or collaborated with Italy's most powerful crime syndicate, the Undrangheta, which reportedly controls over 80% of Europe's cocaine trade and has an annual revenue estimated at $55 billion. The trial primarily focused on the Mancuso crime family, one of the groups that make up the Indrangata, based in the southern Italian city of Vibo Valentia, that prosecutors claim has links to organizations in the U.S. This comes after 70 defendants from the original trial were found guilty in 2021 after they opted for a fast-track procedure in lieu of a reduced punishment. Meanwhile, the defense and the prosecution can appeal Monday's ruling. Thanks, Scott, for those facts. Here's Narrative A from the Wall Street Journal. The verdicts in Italy's mafia trial mark a crucial moment in pursuit of the Indrangheta, which is largely made up of decentralized families with deep loyalties and no obvious leading clan. Prosecutors have jailed key members of the Sicilian mafia since the 1990s, but haven't had much luck infiltrating the Indrangheta till recently. And the Telegraph brings us Narrative B. The Indrangheta convictions are unlikely to kill the criminal network, given its deep roots in over 50 countries. Its elimination will require the reduction of a culture of fear throughout the region. It's a phenomenon that can only be changed with better schools and lower unemployment, which in turn will lead to restoration of faith in the state. Prosecutions alone can't solve this issue. They seem to have a point there. <laughs> it took you an hour and 40 minutes just to read the sentencings. Yeah, yeah. You might have a bigger problem. I got to be careful here. I'm in the dark night. They, uh, you know, they were able to pin every one of Gotham City's crimes on all the different crime families, and it created a power vacuum that allowed the Joker to take over. So what's going to happen here? Oh, man. Yeah, I don't think we want to see an Italian Joker, Italian version no. of the Joker. And his smile would be like tomato sauce. It would just be. Uh, oh it would yeah. Be, it would be. Uh, yeah, yeah. All oh over no, you're face. thinking literally like what would his villain persona be? Yeah. yeah what course. would the Joker be? Yes. Yeah. 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 I think some, it would be spaghetti sauce. spaghetti face or something. Yeah. <laughs> Marinara mouth. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, November 22nd, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. To find out more about Verity, visit our website, verity.news. You can also download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Verity.